It is a joy. Um, I, I consider it to be among friends just coming to, to Windsor. So it's uh, all the greater joy to be able to share some things with you. Over Well, we're going to have four sessions together. Over the past few years, I have been learning, I really am a bit of a technological luddite. I mean, I had a cell phone for three months. I could never understand why I got no calls until my daughter said that. Is it on? <laughs> See, I always thought it, somebody called me, it would switch on. But of late, I have been learning more and more to listen to the Bible in stereo. Sounds rather technological, but it's fundamental actually if we're going to hear what God's saying. Because so often, many Christians, many modern believers, simply listen to God in mono. They're hearing what's coming from the New Testament. And they take a certain pride almost in saying, I'm a New Testament believer. And of course, there's a richness, a fullness of definitiveness to what God has revealed in the New Covenant. But if we're really going to understand what's going on in that New Covenant, we've got to understand what's going on before. And as we listen to the rich sound of what's coming from both of these, then we discover the light comes on. So let's listen in stereo, first of all, because we're going to base our thoughts over the next, well, four um, sessions together in the book of Numbers and Exodus. So let's read, first of all, from Exodus, and then I want to turn to Luke chapter 9, first of all. Luke chapter 9 and then, well, keep your finger in Luke 9, but let's read Exodus 13. And as we're listening to both these testaments, remember, be very conscious of both earpieces. We're going to hear echoes of old and new. This passage from Exodus 13, this is read every single day by a practicing Jew. It's an integral part of the modern morning service. It is said in a read aloud as part of uh, the preparation leading up to what's called the standing prayer, the Amidah. But every single day they remind themselves. Look at verse 3 of Exodus 13. Moses said to the people, commemorate this day that you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord your God brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. But today, in the morning of Aviv, you are leaving. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. And for seven days, eat bread made without yeast. On the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. And coming down to verse 14, getting to the heart of this Passover festival. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord 
the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand, a symbol on your forehead, that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Now turn to a conversation between Moses, Elijah and Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. It might not be immediately obvious, but we'll come to see the relevance of it. We're tapping into this conversation where Jesus is being spoken to at this unique event. And without reading the whole story, for it's reasonably familiar, I'm sure, to us all, we read at verse 30, in the midst of the, the, the glory, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke, now this is where the English version in a sense, lets us down a little bit, but we'll come back to this. They spoke about his departure, which was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. We'll listen to that passage in stereo in a few minutes. But as we listen to the Bible as a whole, we've got to be acutely aware as we're moving through this book, as we listen to both of these speakers, it's as if in the early part, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, it's as if God says so much. And then Jesus comes, and in a definitive revelation, with a fullness that wasn't to be complemented or supplemented by any subsequent revelation, Jesus has revealed simply so much more to us. We get this tendency in some Christian circles to think that because we've got the new, we somehow or another downgrade, we deprecate, if not totally negate the old. There are many sort of incipient Marcians throughout the church. Marcian was a guy who really said we, we don't need the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the depiction of a God who is cold and arbitrary and wrathful. All we need is the new. I think in our age, this age we call the postmodern age. An age that by no means is denying spirituality, but is denying the reality of a big picture. We need to get a hold of the whole Bible. You see, one of the characteristics about what we call postmodernity is you may have your story, I may have my story, you may have your stories, it's all little stories. But at the very heart of this movement, if you're into sort of the history of thought, it's the denial of the big story. The denial of what they call the meta-narrative. The narrative, the big story that sets all the other little stories into context. And the deeper I get into my faith, the more I realize that my Bible, our Bible, is about a big story. And it's a profound challenge to that you know, almost inherent Ulster mentality about we words. How many people read their Bible as if it's simply nothing more than an inspirational dump for your know, thoughts for the day? And we have no awareness of the big picture and of the big story of what's being told to us. And if I could, I would honestly ban promise boxes from every Christian bookshop. Because we dip in for a little thought from today, from Matthew, a little thought tomorrow from Mark. And you never get little thoughts from Leviticus or Deuteronomy 
But oh, we say, we believe in the whole Bible. But we're rather selective in what we consider to be useful and to be inspiration. So let's begin to explore the big picture of what's going on in the whole Bible. Listening to what both these testaments are saying to us. Giving up the idea that God's spoken in mono, but he's spoken to us in stereo. And we need to listen to them both. First of all, come back in a very useful exercise at times. Try to put yourself in the place of an Old Testament Israelite. And as you are participating in the life of the people of God, you are acutely aware there's a, there's, there's a road that lies ahead of you. You are, as a part of the people of God, as it were, journeying towards a promise, a fulfillment of a promise. It's rooted back in Genesis chapter 12, where God gave these promises to Abraham of a land, of an innumerable posterity, and of blessing. So you get this sense as you're going through. You, you can't read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, without hiking boots. You're on your move. You're on a journey towards the fulfillment of promise. Now think particularly of where we're going to think about Exodus and Leviticus together for a little while. When you think of the position of many of the Jewish people, that journey begins with a defining moment, the Exodus. That moment when God takes a divine initiative, when he intrudes into a humanly hopeless and helpless situation, and they begin to journey towards the promised land. But between this divine intrusion and the fulfillment of promise, there's of course the wilderness years. We want to explore some of the lessons that we can learn from this wilderness experience. Because as we listen to the Bible in stereo, it's not accidental that the writer of the book of Hebrews, particularly in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, takes the first century church back to the events in the wilderness. Look at the situation he's addressing when he addresses first century believers. He knows that for them, when they've come to Christ, they've become part of the way. You know that dynamic word that's used in Acts with the top nine? Christianity is never ever used in the New Testament. The believers were called the way. Where does this way start? It starts with a momentous event when God intrudes into history where he takes the divine initiative through the man of his choice intrudes to bring a people to freedom so that they would journey on to the fulfillment of promises that God had given. When you begin to listen in stereo, you begin to hear the analogy. You begin to see the striking resonance as you look at that Old Testament situation that begins the journey in the wilderness with the momentum, momentous intrusion of God into history where they journey towards the fulfillment of promise. And indeed, every new covenant believer, their journey begins with this momentous intrusion of God into history and they journey on towards the fulfillment of that when Christ returns. The analogy is so striking and so phenomenally rich as we begin to listen in stereo to what's going on in the whole Bible. So we want to tune into that just for a little while. And as the days go on, we'll, we'll explore the practical implications of it. But keeping that big picture in our mind, 
we begin to see that even as believers today, there's a journey. A journey that we can be guided in, even as we go back to look at our roots in the Old Covenant, in the Jewish Scriptures. And as we begin to follow Israel, as they come on the map, and there's so much geography in the Old Testament itself, think about the situation in the first five books of the Bible. You can't read these first five books without your hiking roots. Because Genesis brings us from the south of Mesopotamia up the Mesopotamian Valley. It brings us into the land of Canaan. By the end of Genesis, you come down into Egypt with families seeking, as it were, exile and deliverance from family. Exodus brings us out into the Sinai Peninsula. There God enters into an intimate relationship with his people at Sinai that's explored in the book of Leviticus. They journey into the wilderness in the book of Numbers before Deuteronomy brings us right back up. So, you see, we're on, when we locate our studies in Exodus and Leviticus, our Exodus and Numbers, we're, we're part of a journey. It's a big story. Where God's at work, there's movement. I can't help when I think of that map. Yo, I can't help but realize if we're going to understand the God of the Bible, where is it work in fulfilling his promises? There's always movement. My friend down in Dublin, Trevor Morrow, many of you, you'll know his name. Trevor has a little parody in one of the old hymns, which goes, uh, you know, like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are trodden where we've always trodden. We shall not be moved. Look, you can't read these books without feeling a sense that is good. The paradox of our faith is, the deeper your roots go into the faith, the faster your feet will walk. The deeper you are grounded, the with you will move with all the greater alacrity and enthusiasm. You're moving towards the fulfillment of these promises. So, let's come into the desert with Israel. It's an inhospitable environment. It's a scene where, on the one hand, you've got incredibly potential danger for the total eradication and elimination of the people of Israel. At the same place, it becomes the location of divine help. Now, as we listen in stereo, let's compare what the old and the later revelation is saying and teaching us. Because I believe we desperately need today a profound insight into the divine modus operandi. How does God work? In an age where we were surrounded by books called multiculturalism, pluralism, theological Tesco's for you have your deity and I have my deity, we desperately need to have a new understanding of the distinctive mode of God's operation. And key to God's operation and revelation in the pages of Scripture is his initiative to liberate his people. It's an exodus event. And that exodus event is revealed both in terms of what happened in ancient Egypt and also in terms of what happened in Calvary in the work of Jesus. Look at the nature of the exodus event. The original exodus, the prototype, was one that took place in the historical and geographical location of ancient Egypt. It was where God, as the sovereign of the universe, challenged those who had set themselves up to be gods on the face of the earth. 
The Egyptian pharaohs were the god kings. They were virtual deities in the flesh. And so when you come to read about God through Moses challenging the pharaoh, you've got one of these absolutely humongous confrontations, not just of two men, not just of Moses and the megalomaniac, but rather of the powers of God over against the powers of human grandness, human megalomania, human arrogance. And so when you begin to look at you know, the symbols of Pharaoh's greatness and of Egyptian pride, this is precisely what God challenges when he challenges the Pharaoh through the plagues. You remember the very first plague? We don't have time to look at all ten of them. But the first plague, remember, was hitting at the River Nile. Egypt, geographically, has been described as the gift of the Nile. Fertile land is inconceivable apart from, you know, a proximity to the banks of the River Nile. Egypt is, well, the Nile is like an artery flowing right through the heart of Egypt. When God turns the river to blood, what's he doing? Well, he's challenging one of the greatest deities of the Egyptian pantheon. Because they worship the river. The river was a source not only of water, it was a symbol of fertility, it was a means of transport, it was the key to their economy. They had hymns to the Nile. They worshipped the Nile. They prayed to the Nile. So when God through Moses confronts you know, and inflicts a plague on the Nile, he's confronting the very deity that so many of the Egyptians were trusting in. Life was totally dependent on that river. And every one of these plagues can be traced down through as challenging those divide those earthly powers that were holding Israel in captivity. When you look at this Exodus event, it is about the power of God's rule and his dominion and his might and his kingdom confronting everything on the earth that arrogates itself to replace him or to usurp his power. So when we come to look, listen to you know, what happened in that exodus. Now I want you to tune in and stereo for a moment. Come again to the mountain of transfiguration. And this is where the English, in a sense, is so, so misleading. It says two men were talking with him, that's Jesus, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking about his departure. And the most natural line of thinking for us as English readers is, well, he's just about to go up to Jerusalem. If only the English translators had kept the original Greek word, it's a Greek word we all know. Because what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about was his accidents. What Jesus was about to do through his death and ultimate resurrection is an accidents event. You're beginning to hear the richness now in stereo. Because what Moses came to do when he confronted the powers of Egypt, this is the prototype of what Jesus came to do when in himself, as the man of God's choice, he was going to confront every alien power that entrapped or enmeshed humanity. Christ had come as the liberator. 
Christ had come to engage in an exodus event. And when you begin to look at it, you see the parallels. These two exodus events, where you come back to Mount Sinai, you come back to the Red Sea, it's about liberation. That is simply the prototype of the ultimate act of liberation. When God in Christ set his people free and confronted every alien regime, every totalitarian power, including death itself, that would entrap humanity. That's the big picture of what's happening. This is a story of liberation. It's a story of liberation accomplished through the man of God's choice. Because whether you read Exodus or you read the Gospels, you see at the heart of the divine modus operandi, at the heart of God's way of operating, is always the man of his choice. As Leviticus was teaching in a very profound way, there is a way to God, but the way to God must be the way of God. So, the Gospels take that theme up, reiterating it, re-echoing it. There is a way of salvation, but that way is a divine way. And it is accomplished through the man of God's choice. This idea, the man of God's choice, the, the chosen one, when you begin to, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, even in modern literature. You ever begin to think of this idea of the chosen one? The one whom God has chosen for a specific task? There's striking parallels in modern literature that's made me start to explore this area. Because think about it. Any of you Lord of the Rings fans? Remember Bilbo, then Frodo? The incredible burden of being the chosen one. The incredible weight of carrying that ring to destruction. Yes, even our Harry. I don't know if you're Harry fans. I'm fascinated by Harry. Jake, you know, maybe for interior decoration, we need Harry. But also from a literary point of view, I think sometimes we should read Harry. J.K. Rowling. Can I say publicly to J.K. Rowling, thank you? You've raised issues. Philosophers and theologians have talked about but can't get people to talk about. If you read the last volume of Harry, death is in virtually every page. Where theologians and philosophers have raised that issue and people have they don't want to talk about that. J.K. Rowling has that thing. Even Voldemort. I mean, my Latin wasn't great. I learned French in Balamina from a, a Huckle woman. I learned Latin in Balamina, so it's not great. But I had enough Latin to remember Voldemort. Mort's about death. Hardy struggle against the power of death. Death is that ubiquitous totalitarian regime that seeks to destroy you. Incidentally, I sometimes wonder, J.K. Rowling is so perceptive in the sense, you know all those people who don't believe in Harry's world? They don't believe in the world of the supernatural that Harry inhabits. They call them muggles. Do you know deep down, I think there's an incredible number of muggles sitting in churches. They don't really believe in the reality and the power of the spiritual world. That's an incredible lot of them. But 
issue. Because as I read, and don't, don't misunderstand me, I'm not in any way suggesting J.K. Rowling is writing a Christian track. But she raises issues that I can't help but ask. As she raises them, is this what, you remember Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, where he says, God has put eternity in the hearts of man. Where she raises issues that resonate with us. The struggle against death. The struggle of good and evil. And as she raises this, one of the fascinating things I found about that last volume, she gave me an insight into the pain of being the chosen one. Harry struggles with you know, his own willingness to sacrifice himself so that his friends will actually be delivered and that they will be saved. These themes run through the pain of being the chosen one. That's a theme that runs right through the very heart of the Bible. The pain of being the chosen one of God. Because as you come to look at Scripture, against the background of our what we call postmodern society <coughs> with its supposed pluralistic outlook, one of the most offensive words, one of the most offensive numbers in modern society is one. Look at the heart of Freemasonry. There are many portals, many pathways to God. Listen to Amadeus Mozart in one of his Masonic cantatas. You who worship the Creator, you may call him food, you may call him Vishnu, you may call him Brahma. There are many, many ways to God. Look at the heart of, of various movements, and, and I don't in any way say this in a negative way, but Alcoholics Anonymous. I know too many people that it's helped, so don't misunderstand me here. I'm not in, in any way pejorative of an AA. But look at its literature, because it says, you know, commendably, your first step is to acknowledge that you have a problem and commit your power, your life to a power or to a God that is greater than you. You commit your life to God as you understand Him to be. That may be Jesus, but it could be the Buddha. Now, say, I'm not attacking AA, I'm not anyway that. But I'm saying, you see, the reflection of the way of our supposed liberal thinking. There are many ways to God. There are many ways of salvation. When you come to look at scripture, you are driven relentlessly towards the deeply offensive nature of this word one. The one man of God's choice. The one way. The one mediator. The one liberator. The one faith. The one baptism. That one is deeply, deeply offensive in our society and in our pluralism. And yet, as you listen to God, you begin to see this irresistible and irrefutable emphasis on the one of His choice, whether you're in Exodus or in the Gospels. For the emphatic emphasis of in the early stage, Moses, and the later stage, Jesus, as the man of God's choice. <coughs> Look too at the striking parallels between these two events. In the, both of these liberation events, God very graciously gives his people a meal to eat. That's what we were reading in Exodus 13. 
When you look at this meal to eat, at the heart of this meal, whether in the Old Testament or the New Covenant, there is a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. Go back to that last supper in Egypt. At the heart of it, there was a death of a lamb that celebrated this momentous intrusion of God into history. And when you think about it, right down through the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Israelites, right up until we use the crosses representing the coming of Jesus, they were celebrating this momentous event. They had a meal to celebrate God's intrusion into history. It was that meal that Jesus took over, and as he observed the Passover, changed that Passover meal into the supper, the supper that we eat together. When we gather around this table, do you have this stupendous sense of history, this deep awareness of history, that this is not just some little momentary existential encounter with Jesus, but this is actually being brought into this majestic sweep of redemptive history. Remember what Eugene Peterson said recently? Salvation is not like a one-night stand. Salvation is being drawn into a momentous epic event that has a history. That sense of memory of participating in the meal. And as we look at that event through the Exodus, we can begin to get a wonderful lens through which we can interpret the ultimate Exodus when the man of God's choice liberated his people. And indeed, as we look at that meal, through that meal, we can get a fascinating lens that will help us understand what we do when we sit at the Lord's table. Isn't that a very, against the ancient Near Eastern background, could you ask for a more hospitable and personal, intimate gesture? God says, how will you remember my great saving activity? We eat together. We'll sit down and we'll eat. And at both those meals, we simply celebrate and we obey the Lord's command. To give both of these events you know, a place in our mind, God also gives us a song to sing. Do you ever look at Exodus 15? As soon as Israel had crossed the Red Sea, God didn't give them a creek to sign. What's happening in the modern church? You know, yes, you follow Jesus, but here, you've got to join up and sign our dotted land. And make sure you agree with subsection A under subpoint B and this creedal statement. We ask people to sign creeds. God asked them to sing a creed. And as he brought them across the Red Sea, well, can you remember who won last year's Eurovision? I can, not a bally notion. But Moses, the songwriter, composed the song of the sea. Oh, go home and read the song of the sea. Exodus 15. You begin to see the significance that it was the song that celebrated God's victory over the young. Yeah, not, not look at the Hebrew words to be smart. But there's something you can only say. The Hebrew word yam, which means sea, also was the name for the ancient deity of destruction and power and chaos. The sea represented... The, the Jews never went to the seaside for their holidays. They didn't like the sea. They wouldn't have enjoyed Fort Rush. The sea was a destructive power. The psalmist said, you know, the waters are covering my head. Old Jonah was down there in the belly, underneath the water. That's why John, in the final book of the, the New Covenant, said there will be no sea. Because the yam represented that which is destructive. Do you remember the subtle bit? 
when Jesus walked on the waters of Galilee. Jesus, in a very, very subtle way, was sending out an implicit signal. As you see me walk on the waters, remember, I am embodying to you and I am revealing to you the God who controlled the waters. I opened the Red Sea, the ultimate liberator. And at the heart of that song, that question is asked, who amongst the gods is like you? Yes, there are other gods who have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't handle. They don't speak with their throats. They have feet, but they don't walk. The God of the Exodus is a God who took on ears, eyes, nose, throat, feet, and walked where we walk. The reality of the incarnation to achieve the ultimate act of liberation. And that song they were singing in Exodus 15, believe me, that's only the choir rehearsal. The command performance hasn't been given yet. Because if you tune in and stare at you begin to see. Well, listen in Revelation 15. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, or back to the sea image, mixed with fire, those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. What were they singing? The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Listen in stereo, because the song of Exodus 15 resonates the ultimate cover version is Exodus 50, where God, who had set his people free from Egypt, sets his people free from all forms of bondage. God has given us that song to sing. And he's still inviting us to come and join the choir before the command performance is ultimately given. But at the very heart of Exodus, there's also a way to live. As God brought Israel to himself at Sinai, he gave them a way to live. Now, I tell you what changed my whole thinking about what happened at Mount Sinai was when I came to an appreciation that to you know to this day that every Orthodox Jewish wedding is modeled on the events at Mount Sinai. We don't have time to look at all the parallels. But what's happening at Sinai? God said, I'm not bringing you to Sinai. I'm bringing you to myself. And what happens at Sinai? He literally marries his bride. There's a wedding at Sinai. And every Jewish wedding that takes place underneath the canopy or the chuppah, that canopy represents the glory cloud that came down in Exodus. Any of you here joined the Cloud Appreciation Society? Blue skies are dull. Join the Cloud Appreciation Society. It's amazing. Because if you join it, you begin to see, particularly the Biblical Cloud Appreciation Society, the glory cloud that runs through the scripture is quite astounding. Absolutely amazing. Do you ever notice it? Comes down in Sinai, comes down over the Ark of the Covenant, comes down into the temple. The glory cloud in the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory cloud Acts chapter 1 at the time of ascension. In uh, Thessalonians, Jesus will return. The cloud. That's not just meteorological observation. It's about the glory cloud. 
And the cloud comes down. What happens at Sinai? God comes down and he hovers over his people and he gives them his presence and he consummates a marriage with them. He establishes a relationship, a covenant, a marriage. And in many ways, you see, it wasn't a contract. It was a covenant. The idea of a formal, well, listen to Abraham Heschel, the God of Israel cares as little for contract and the cash nexus as he cares for mere slavish obedience and obsequiousness. God didn't call his people into that Uriah heap type religion. You know that type of thing we call an Ulster good living? Pick the bags. Doesn't go to the pictures. The Wayans don't pick up all on Sunday. All the outward stuff. Uriah heap obsequiousness. No, what does God enter into? Listen to Eugene Peterson. This is just a marvelous quote. He says, The Hebrews would no more have considered the covenant ten words as a burden in living a life of faith than a person would call nouns, verbs, and prepositions a burden in carrying on a conversation. Peterson says, Covenant? Covenant is the syntax of our relationship. What does syntax do? It brings words, prepositions, grammar together to allow us to communicate. That's what covenant does. Covenant is establishes the syntax of our relationship with the living God. It's a marriage relationship. But one final thought as you, you move through this book very quickly. After Sinai, well in any wedding, the couple want to live together. So there's a natural home. And what do we find? God comes down the mountain. And from Exodus 25 onwards, he gives his presence to his people in a nuptial hope, in the tent of Betel. He's there in their midst. Not the remote God of deism, but the intimate God who, without compromising his transcendence, gives us the reality of his intimacy. And what happens at Pentecost? That same God comes down into the hearts of his people. That same God is building today a new temple in living stones where the spirit of the living God dwells in ordinary people in these frail, fickle flower pots you and I call body. The reality, the down payment, the reality of that spirit, that ongoing presence is with us. Whereas Paul says God puts his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. That's what a guarantee does. I mean business. There's more to come. We ourselves are the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits that the farmer knows is the first to come, the first of a crop that guarantees more. God's given us the ongoing presence of the Spirit, the first fruits and the down payment. So as we listen in stereo, we can participate in an event, the ultimate in the divine liberation, where through the man of God's choice, God gives us a meal still to celebrate. He gives us a song that we can sing. And he gives us an ongoing presence that we can enjoy and live in. Let's pray together. Lord, in a world where we have so many distorted and disfigured and discolored impressions of salvation. Give us a true understanding of what you want to teach us.
help us to listen to your word and enter into your freedom as never before. Through Jesus in whom we experience the ultimate access. Amen. Joy, what are we finishing with? I praise you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Let's stand and sing it. <coughs>